Well, I was <clears throat> texting with my daughter, Kaylin, yesterday as I was preparing for today, and she said, well, what are you preaching on tomorrow, Dad? And I, <clears throat> I said, well, it's kind of interesting. I'm preaching about a sorcerer, a eunuch, a guy named Philip, and bells. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, you're going to have to watch the video. <laughs> Take a little bit of time to explain. But if you, have your, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in the eighth chapter. And I know you just sat down. But I'm going to ask you to stand back up to your feet. So I want to read this text. Now, a little bit of background uh, this is part two of a message that began last week, and I'm not normally one to do two parts because I feel like sometimes if we miss the first one, then there's, you know, it just feels like we're catching up. And so after I read this passage, I'm going to give us a cliff note version of a little bit about what we talked about last week, but you can always catch them uh, on our website. So if you missed last week and you want to hear the whole thing, you can go to our website and catch up. Um, we're introduced to a guy named Philip. He was one, if you remember back in chapter 6, was sort of elected, appointed to care for widows who had need, one of seven guys. And then there was this great wave of persecution and all the Christians left Jerusalem. Philip left and he began preaching in Samaria. And then there's this long chunk in the middle of chapter 8 uh, the section many of your Bibles might say Simon the Sorcerer or Simon the Magician uh, over that section. I'm not going to read that entire thing, but we're going to address it here in just a few minutes. What I want to read is the conclusion of chapter 8 when we get back to Philip's story. So we pick up Philip's narrative in chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. 
When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. It's the word of the Lord. Say thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, last week, like I said, we started our conversation on chapter 8, and we launched into this um, new mini-series, if you will, in the book of Acts, uh, called Going Viral, the Church Going Viral, and for some time, as we've learned in the early chapters of Acts, the gospel spread fairly quickly, the good news about Jesus spread, but it was mostly contained uh, entirely in, in Jerusalem. And so these early followers of Christ were fulfilling part of what Jesus had said. He said, I'm going to go, and then the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to do what? To be witnesses, right? The Holy Spirit's going to empower you to share this news with other people in Jerusalem. That's where they started. That's where they were. But then it kind of expanded out, didn't it? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you so that you can share this story in Jerusalem, which they were doing a really good job at. They had formed this little ecclesia. Now we know it by this time. It started to be called uh, the, the very formation of this early church has come together because they keep assembling and, and doing these sorts of things and they care for each other and they love each other and they eat together and they worship together and they pray together and they study the word together. It's just this cozy little picture that we have of what's going on in Jerusalem. They're doing a good job sharing the message there. But Jesus said, it's going to go to Samaria and to you know, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we started talking about this last week that until uh, a guy named Stephen, who was also one of the seven guys who were chosen to help in the food distribution, um, until Stephen start, became very bold and started preaching in, in front of the Sanhedrin, until they put him to death, until they murdered him, until they stoned him, um, the church was contained in Jerusalem. Once, once the authorities had crossed the line of being concerned, of... Um, trying to oppress as much as they can through spoken words, some floggings here and there, and just some, you know, some uh, reprimands that they didn't really follow through on because they didn't legally have the power to put people to death. But when they got so incensed and so angry with Stephen and their anger rose up inside them and they dragged him out of the city and crushed him with rocks... The authorities, the religious leaders, those, again, the church, were empowered to go out and persecute and rattle everybody's cage 
and say, no, that's enough with this movement. It wasn't until Stephen died that this great wave of persecution happened. And we learn that the church scattered. They left Jerusalem. They went away. Everybody but the apostles were told. And so the result of this persecution, the intent was to silence the church, right? The intent, the intent was to silence these believers in Jesus from talking about resurrection and those sorts of things and that new life can be found in him. That was the intent, but the result of this persecution wasn't the silencing of the message about Jesus, but it was the explosion of the gospel. The persecution actually was what was the catalyst for the Christians to rise up and go to other places, and when they went to other places, the Holy Spirit had filled them and empowered them, and they shared the good news of Jesus wherever they went. Ordinary people. Remember we talked at... This is news that every believer in Jesus is authorized and commanded to share with everybody. And so we, we took a while to talk about God poking us, moving us out beyond our comfort zones. So maybe those first believers had grown a little bit comfortable where they were in Jerusalem. And now they're a little bit uncomfortable and they're out in new surroundings and, and it's what really scattered the gospel all over the place. It's what helped the church go viral. They shared and then their friends shared and they shared and, and pretty soon the gospel is reaching places that had never been before. And I think God asks us to cross lines so that we can share his love, his grace, his mercy, his story with other people. Now, God wants us to be rooted. God wants us to be rooted deeply in him. But he doesn't want us to be planted in the sense that we resist his prompting when he says go. When the Holy Spirit says move, he doesn't want to be planted in such a way that we're incapable or unwilling, more like it, to do so. God wants us to be rooted in him, but flexible enough when he says, hey, I need you to cross this line and I, I need you to talk with this person or to go to this place, or when the circumstances of our life changes, that yes, sometimes it's, we don't know exactly why they're happening. Why did I get changed? Why did my job change? Why did I get fired? Why did we have to move across town? Why did I, you know, all sorts of things that we come up with, things that we might not know how to interpret yet. Maybe we can remember that wherever it is we go, for whatever reason it is that there are new opportunities, there's new people that God has entrusted to our care to share the news with. Some people who may never have heard it before. I always get a little bit of pushback when I say this, and it comes as a surprise to to people sometimes, or maybe even a shock, because we live in a, a Christian climate that makes it sound like God is really interested in making us happy. 
uh, God isn't as concerned with your comfort and your happiness as he is with you being a fully devoted, obedient follower. So he gets the stick out once in a while and he pokes us and he, he challenges us to cross lines that we've drawn around our lives and usually the line that we draw around our life is comfort. I just feel good right, right where I am. We are the means. We, us, are the means by which the gospel goes viral. Now maybe, maybe this metaphor will stick with you. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. We can vote on it later. But, you know, when you talk about viral, you, you also, you know, there's viruses that go around. So maybe we should look at ourselves as the people who are supposed to sneeze the gospel wherever we go. <laughs> It'll work. God's kingdom explodes when we cross lines and we are scattered. And I'm convinced that God is calling each of us to cross a line. Move out beyond our own comfort zone, our safety bubble. Get into new, uncharted, unfamiliar, dangerous kind of territory. Because when we, when we stay within our, our little bubble, it doesn't take too much thought. You might have a good life sometimes. You might have a rocky, turbulent life sometimes, but it's what you know. And so when it's what you know, it doesn't always require too much of us. And what happens is when we grow complacent and comfortable, is that we stop relying on the power that God's put in our life to live. But when we step over that line and we feel a little bit uneasy, unsettled, might be a little bit dangerous, to make it, we have to rely on God. And that's the place where he wants us to live all of the time. So when this becomes comfortable, what do you think is going to happen? God's going to tell us to go here, right? Because this is now the dangerous place. And when this becomes comfortable, he's going to tell us to cross over here. And when this becomes comfortable, what's he going to do? There's always something more that is out there. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to pick up and move your family every time. Sometimes the circles that you're, the lines that you're crossing are, are just places, uh, employment, school, neighborhood, participation in uh, activities and ministries of the church. Maybe it's going on a work and witness trip. Maybe it's exploring something that you never thought that you would, would do. God's nudging us in those ways. See, we're, we're really getting to the conversation and, and talking about being a witness. Back in chapter 1, that's what we're told. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's going to fill you with power so that you can be witnesses, you can share. And so we've been tracking with this story of Philip. And Luke kind of holds Philip up as this upright, good example for us. He wasn't one of the apostles. He was one who was 
um, appointed to be a deacon, to be a servant within that congregation, but we quickly find that he, he, um, he's probably still serving in that way, but he, he's also taken on more things now. He feels empowered to share. Sometimes we say, go and preach the gospel. How many people, when you hear preach the gospel, that's just a little bit scary, right? Maybe don't think about it so much as preach the gospel as share Jesus with other people. It's the same thing. But in the way that we talk about things, preach sounds a whole lot more scary than share. I know every single one of you can share. You can share your story. You can share how Jesus has impacted your life. That's what it means to preach the gospel. And Philip is one who, wherever he goes, he does that. The Holy Spirit has filled him, given him a boldness to share Jesus wherever he goes. So he finds himself in Samaria. And for, for a Jewish guy, going to Samaria, that's crossing a huge racial line. Jews and, and uh, Samaritans did not get along at all. And so the simple fact that he is in Samaria and he's sharing the gospel shows us that he has crossed a line. And the Holy Spirit is what's empowered him and helped him to do that. Now, that's like the cliff notes of what we talked about last week. And then we get to this verse 9, and there's this episode that seems to interrupt Philip's story, labeled Simon the Sorcerer. And verse 9 says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. So we're talking about in Samaria here. So the connection is Philip has gone to evangelize, to witness and share the gospel with the people in Samaria. And for a time, they had been captured by this other guy named Simon who was a magician who did magic tricks. And they quickly followed him because they thought that because he could display illusions or whatever it was that he was doing, that he had the power of God with him. Now, we're not going to spend too long on this, but there's a couple things that I want you to see in this passage. One of them is that the people of Samaria in this particular section and much of what's going on in the religious climate of today, you could put side by side. And you could interchange names and places and you would find that a lot of it is similar. See, the Samaritans were what I would call religiously open. Back in the day when uh, the, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the Samaritans got carted off into exile along with the northern kingdom, if you remember that. Um, the Assyrians moved people in to Samaria, but there were still some people living in the land. They didn't exile everybody. So when I say religiously open, I mean that they are willing to be swayed by whatever seems right at the time. 
the most powerful voice, the place that puts on the best show, they were quickly drawn to. It captivated their attention. So they would have been practicing one version of faith, thinking that they're doing the right thing. And they were following this guy, Simon, we're told, thinking that he had the power of God with them. And the reason they thought he had the power of God with them is because he could do pretty cool, materialistic, temporal sorts of things. But then Philip comes in, and he starts preaching the gospel. We're told uh, up a few verses that he had been doing some signs. Um, I think he was healing people. I think he continued his role as a servant and was reaching out to people who had need, and because the Holy Spirit empowered him, he was able to serve people. And so we're told that these Samaritans quickly are like, oh, Simon, you're a little bit old news now. That's a cool trick. You made that disappear and come back. Woohoo! But this guy just healed somebody over here. So whew, the power of God must be over here. We're told that Simon himself was even drawn to what was going on with Philip. And then the apostles from Jerusalem come, Peter and John, and they, they bring the power of the Holy Spirit and they lay their hands on the people. And Simon sees that and he's like, wow, I need to put that in my magic show. Can I buy this power? Can I too be able to control the Holy Spirit? And that's what he's rebuked for. Peter says, no, the Holy Spirit is not for sale. You don't put the Holy Spirit in your pocket and bring it out three-fourths of the way through your show so that you really, you know, that's your big finish. That's not, that's not how it works, Simon. But these people were religiously open, willing to be swayed by the most powerful thing that they see here and there. And there's a version of Christianity that's out there floating around right now that's very experiential in nature, where you can create just the right environment and mood for the Holy Spirit to work. Typically, a lot of those environments, um, I'm pretty insistent that we keep the lights on in here, in the house. And, and I, I have the lights on, one, because my eyesight ain't so good, and so I like seeing you. But two, when the lights go down, it brings us all within. It focuses our attention into our own self, our own stuff. And that's not all bad, but the idea of coming to church is what? Corporate worship. It, is, it brings a huge amount of strength and encouragement when we stand and sing to look around and see other people who are declaring the same things that we are. Because when we go out into our workplaces and in our schools and in our community, if you look around, you don't often see people singing praises to the Lord. And sometimes it isolates us and we lose motivation, we lose strength, and we are easily swayable people. 
But when we come in here, it's a powerful thing to be in the presence of God together. And so you'll notice there's lots of things that they, the, the, all the lights go down, and where are the main lights focused? On the performers, on the platform, who somehow have all of the control in the environment. I think maybe sometimes the object of worship is misplaced. We're here to glorify and declare God not hold up on a pedestal those who may be on the platform. See, the ministry of Simon exalted a person, not Jesus. He wanted to bring Jesus along as the sideshow. I want to buy the Holy Spirit so that I can use it to my own ends. There's a connection with what's happening in a huge vein of Christianity in our culture. See, Simon was wanting to do something in a very temporal, materialistic kind of way. He wanted to use the power of the Holy Spirit to um, help people solve their temporal issues. So, think of the health and wealth gospel that goes around. Hey, if you're doing your faith just right, if you come to this or you do that or you touch your TV or whatever it is, you can be healed. You can, I can solve all your financial, your physical, your emotional. All of those problems can go away if you do it just right. And usually the emphasis isn't on the power of God it's on the place or the person who is preaching that. Or that you're doing your faith in just the right formula. That you can have all of those things. And Philip and Peter and John, they rebuke Simon for this kind of thinking and they refocus his attention on it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did. So this is the interruption. It's way deeper than that. And when I have a few spare moments, I'll write about it. But when we get to a passage like that, I think it's critically important for us to figure out how does that speak to us today? And this isn't as far removed from our culture as we might initially read, and we just ought to be careful. Well, that, that story comes as an interruption. Philip's story comes back where we, where we picked it up. Philip's not afraid to cross lines, and so he runs up to this Ethiopian guy, and we learn that he's a eunuch, which means he's been castrated. And so when uh, eunuchs were often the most trusted kind of people to work in the higher positions in the king's court, because most of the ways of treachery that got people in trouble, he didn't have those problems. And so he was a high official uh, in charge of all of the finance, of his land for the queen back at home. And he had visited Jerusalem to worship the Hebrew God. 
Now that should stand out for us for a moment because somebody from Ethiopia probably had a different religious system. Somehow he's heard of the Hebrew God. Somehow he's embraced this Hebrew God enough so that he makes this pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem to worship. And it's deeper than that because he would have been rejected at the temple. Deuteronomy 23 specifically says that he could not worship for two reasons. One, he's a foreigner, so he'd never make it past the court of the Gentiles to start. Two, he was viewed as unclean because he was a eunuch. And so he would never, ever be welcomed into the worship environment. I don't know if he knew that before he went, but he made a long pilgrimage that amounted to nothing. He could maybe get into the court of the Gentiles and look around. Maybe he could talk to the passers-by. Hey, what, what's it like in there? I hear really neat things, but I clearly read the signs that tell me that I'm forbidden, that I'm not allowed, that I'm unclean, that I'm unwelcome. And yet there he is. He's made it from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, and I just imagine him kind of going around, if he's in the court of Gentiles, you know, if you ever go into an urban area and there's new construction, and you know how they put up the hurricane fencing all along, and they put those little slats in so you can't see what's going on behind the fence. And if you, if you stand there long enough, and it's usually a guy, the guys, you know, we're walking along, you're like, hey, I wonder what's going on in the fence. I see some heavy equipment in there. It's a backhoe. Wow. You know how we are. We're curious about whatever's going on behind the curtain, behind the fence. And I can see this eunuch maybe walking around the court of Gentiles talking to the people and saying, hey, what goes on in there? But he clearly could read the signs. It says he has a copy of Scripture, so he's reading Isaiah at the time. But he's made this long pilgrimage that probably was very disappointing for him because he didn't go, get to go in and participate in the worship with the people because he wasn't clean, because he wasn't welcome. Philip listens to the Holy Spirit. God told him, hey, go to this road, and, and he directs him. God directs Philip's thoughts and actions, and Philip listens and pays attention. He, okay, I'm going. And so he sees this eunuch in the chariot reading, and it's moving. I mean, a chariot is drawn by a horse, I imagine, which is probably not slow, so here's, you know, Philip is, hey, Do you understand what you're reading? Well, how, how can I understand what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? So he invites Philip up into the chariot. You see how God's kingdom is just busting out all over the place? It's scattered from Jerusalem. God's kingdom is growing. It's moving out. 
we can participate in that. Philip clearly is listening, and he sees God's kingdom busting out all over the place, and he says, I got to go talk to this guy. And the eunuch is there, and he's one, he wonders who Isaiah is talking about. He's looking for himself in the Bible. You ever do that? You read through Scripture to find out, where's, where's my place in all of this? I imagine that there was a disconnect between what the eunuch intuitively sensed about God and his love and his grace and the rude welcome or unwelcome that he got when he made it to the temple. So there's a disconnect sometimes between how religion practices what they think God is saying and the actual experience of the reality of who God says he is. And the eunuch is caught between who he thinks he knows God is or senses who he thinks God is and what the religious system was saying, hey, no, you're, no, you're not allowed. You're unclean. And so he's in the Bible. He's looking for his place. I've got to be in here somewhere. That grace and mercy, I, I've got to be able to experience that somehow, some way. I find it rather interesting that Philip comes upon him when he's at Isaiah 53. And he's reading about the suffering servant who is going to accomplish God's will and and rescue Israel and rescue the world. And Philip shares the good news about Jesus starting with this very passage. He says, Jesus is the one that you're reading about? I think the eunuch is trying to figure out how do I go from being excluded and unclean to somebody who is included and clean and Philip tells him. He points to the suffering servant, Jesus, and he is the one who will make it all happen. If you, if you have your Bible, just flip back to Isaiah 53. That's about the suffering servant. It's a prophecy about Jesus. But then, but then we get to Isaiah chapter 54. This is why it's really, why I think it's just, I think, I hope you think this is cool. So Isaiah 53 is talking about the suffering servant, how all of those things are going to become possible in the person of, of Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant. But then you get to Isaiah 54, and Isaiah is talking about the new covenant that God's going to establish. And then you get to Isaiah 55, and he talks about the new creation that's going to exist. And then you get to chapter 56, and this is what's really cool. So three chapters later, from where Philip runs up to this guy, these are the words of Isaiah. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them, I will give within my temple and its walls. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Three chapters later, 
The eunuch has been wondering, where do I fit in in this whole story? I've just been rejected from the temple. I'm not allowed to worship this God who I know, who I sense is loving and grace-filled and has a place for me and who can make me clean. How do I get in on that? Three chapters later from what he's reading, is that beautiful word? Everybody's included. Philip points him in the right direction. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. In him, those who have been excluded would now be included and welcomed. Open arms. No wonder, no wonder this eunuch wanted to share in the death and the resurrection and be baptized right on the spot. Hey, there's a puddle of water. Can we stop and can I get baptized right now? And consider this because we're talking about witnessing. The eunuch went back to his own land. He was on his way home, right? I'm sure that he shared this story with at least one person. You think? Just one person? And I want, to, I want you to see how cool this is. Because remember Acts 1.8, Jesus said, I'm going to, the Holy Spirit's going to come come upon you, and it's going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. So we, Jerusalem, check, right? We know it went out to Judea, check. We know it went out to Samaria, check. What's the last one? To the ends of the earth. Okay, so in the ancient world, do you want to know what the ends of the earth are? In the ancient world, the ends of the earth were considered as one, in the west, the Atlantic Ocean. Okay? In the west, the Atlantic Ocean. In the north, the Germanic tribes. Somewhere up in the north, the Germanic tribes. India was the ends of the earth in the east. You want to know in the south what the end of the earth was? Ethiopia. So Philip, in his influence, he was scattered. God poked him, he crossed the line and went into Samaria. He was spirit-filled. He paid attention to what God wanted him to do. He went and he talked to this Ethiopian, unlocked scripture for him, introduced him to Jesus. The Ethiopian goes home, and I'm sure shared it with at least one person, so the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth in Philip. Do you think maybe that's still possible today? with the nature of how information bounces around all over the place, that when we are obedient and pay attention to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that this person that we might share with may have connections to the ends of the earth, and we will never know it. But God only asks us to be faithful, right? God takes responsibility for results. He asks us to be faithful. See, the kingdom is no longer contained. The kingdom is unleashed. It is scattered, and it goes out. And Luke gives us Philip as this example. He's spirit-filled. He's proactive. He takes the responsibility upon himself. He's sensitive to people's needs. He's tactful in the way that he goes about it. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Is there something maybe I could help you out with? 
I mean, that's not offensive, is it? He pointed people to Jesus. I know when we talk about witnessing and sharing or if we ever use the word evangelize, um, sometimes the images that pop into our head aren't all that healthy because we've seen plenty of ways to not share the gospel. I, I noted three kind of, three types that they all have something good like we need to take, uh, I'm going to show, show you three models. Um, we need to take something from each of them, but not any one completely, okay? So one, there's a, a, a group of people, let's, I'm just going to call them the cold callers. I mean, these are highly motivated people. They go out with a, a backpack full of, you know, all of the coolest tracks and things like that, and they are armed, and they are ready, and they will talk to anybody, and they, they don't take no for an answer, and sometimes they come across as a little abrasive. Have you ever been approached by one of those? I admire their boldness. I admire their tenacity. I ad admire that they will open dialogue with anyone. I admire that. That's good. Not being afraid to engage with other people, that's a healthy thing. But I bristle at the way they turn off maybe more people than they engage just in their methodology. And I grow weary in their inability to see that because the excuse or the response usually is, hey, do you think that's the best way to go about that? Well, the Bible says the gospel's going to offend some people. Yeah, but maybe it's not the gospel that's offending people right now. And cold callers have the inability to see that. There's a second group. I call them the debaters. I mean, they have every logical argument down. And so they will engage with people of other faith, faiths or people who have no faith, and they'll want to argue with them. And they'll their conversations are usually, are usually very fascinating. You can oftentimes learn something. Uh, these are people who have mastered a category of information that we call apologetics. Um, they, but the idea behind that is to provide more answers than the other side. And so in the end, you end up winning the argument. But I've never, I've never seen someone who loses a debate come to Christ. Now, I've seen some people who have had to have some questions that they wrestled with answered before any work could be done on their heart, but most often people aren't debated into the kingdom. And, and the third category, I call them wallflowers. They're silent witnesses before God. They hope that their lifestyle will do all the talking. They're just waiting for somebody, hey, I hope somebody watches me and sees me respond this way, and they're going to come up to me, and they're going to say, how do I make Jesus my Lord and Savior? They're waiting for somebody to ask that question. And you know what? They'll probably give them a really good answer once that question is asked. 
But most of the time, people don't articulate their question in that way. And so what happens is we never connect the words with our lifestyle, and clearly we're asked to do that. See, it takes all elements of these to be a good witness, to be an effective witness. And I'm always looking for good ways to motivate us, to encourage us, to give us a picture of what that might look like in our own lives. And so in, in my spare time, I read a couple books this week on, on this very thing, and I came across one uh, written by a guy named uh, Mike Frost. He's a pastor over in Australia, and he was wrestling with the same sorts of things and trying to figure out a way, how do I, how do I give my people something that will help them engage with the people around them in a way that will open up conversations maybe to share their faith. And so I told you that I was going to talk about a sorcerer, a eunuch, Philip, and bells, right? And so Mike Frost's method, these are all things that we have talked about, but I love how he put them together. He uses the acronym bells. So if you have your core guide and you want to write that, it's an, it's an acronym. Uh, and bells is simply this. This is not a, uh, this is not like a 40 days of purpose kind of thing where, you know, after the 40 days you can revert back to whatever it was you're doing. This is something, these are things that I think would be helpful if we all paid attention to them and built them into the regular course of our everyday living. So here's the, here's the acronym, BELLS, B, BLESS. I want you to bless three people each week. Bless three people each week. One brother or sister in Christ. One who you know is not a Christian. And the third could be from either of those first two categories. Okay, so bless three people a week. Now, I find it interesting. I was doing some work on the word bless. And our word bless comes from an old word that means to strengthen one's arm to strengthen one's arm. So when you bless someone, what are you doing? You're adding strength to them. You are building them up. You can do this through words of blessing. So you can offer uh, encouragement. It could be something that is spoken. It could be something that is written down, uh, an email, a card, however it is. So you can, you can bless somebody through your words, encourage them, strengthen their arm, um, affirm them for something, do it in a way that's authentic and it shows that you've actually noticed something about their life. You can bless somebody through acts of kindness, mow their yard, um, you know, help them with whatever project they have going on, uh, just serve another person in a way that's an act of kindness. You can bless somebody through being generous, giving gifts. Hey, you know what? I, I noticed you needed this, and I, want, I really wanted to help you out with that. So, blessing. Blessing three people each week. A brother and sister in Christ. Uh, one person who you know is not a Christian, and the third one could be from either of those two categories. To bless somebody means that you, you have to be attentive to people's needs. You have to be attentive to their fears and their hopes and their longings and just observe your neighbors, observe your coworkers and friends in such a way that you can bless them in a way that is meaningful to them. So let's be, bless three people a week. 
E, eat. We like to eat. Like most people eat three times a day. That's not including coffee and donut time whenever, you know. So there's a minimum then of 21 opportunities to eat with people. So eat with three people a week. You guessed it. Uh, one brother and sister in Christ, brother or sister in Christ, one person who you know isn't a Christian, and the third um, could be from either of those two categories. So you could take three different meals a week or coffee times, or you could, you could do one and invite, you know, three people to that. But you know what happens around the table? Special times, you engage with people. You pause, and you, you interact, and you begin to learn things about one another. You hear stories, and, and life just becomes more real around the table. And if you, if you remember, Jesus came eating and drinking with people, right? Jesus made himself known on the, after he was resurrected. The two that were going off home to Emmaus, Jesus tells them the whole story of the Old Testament scriptures that point to him, but it's not till they're gathered around the table and eating together when he breaks the bread where they go, Jesus reveals himself at the table. Zacchaeus in the tree, a sinner. Jesus looks up and says, hey, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have dinner at your house. Come on down. It's around the table where Zacchaeus finds it in himself to turn from his sin and go in a different direction. Jesus becomes known at the table. So bless three people a week. Eat with three people a week. And the next three are are pretty quick. Listen. The first L is listen. Create one space in your week where you intentionally listen to God. Uh, A silent place. Prayer time. Not to forsake your other devotional times, your other prayer times, but set aside one, one time in your week where you just listen for the voice of the Lord to encourage you, to direct you, to talk to you. The second L is learn. Create one space in your week where you just focus on Jesus. Again, it's in addition to other, you know, studies that you might be going through, core guide material, that, you know, different devotionals that you might have going on. One time in your week where you just focus on Jesus, his message, how he lived, his sermons. There's lots of resources that are out there to help you out. We've talked about it recently as know the story. If you know the story, then you can tell the story. If you know what Jesus taught, then you can quote Jesus. If you know how Jesus lived, then you can pattern your life after how Jesus would have lived. And the, So bless three people a week, eat with three people a week, listen, protect that time to listen to God, Learn the story, it's the L, the second L. And the S is understand that you are sent. We are the sent ones. We gather, yes, but all of us 
leave this place and we are scattered around this community and we are sent, we are the great commission people. Go into all the world and preach the gospel or go into all the world and share the message of Jesus. That's what it means to be sent. And so step underneath that mantle, embrace it, learn to love it because when, when, when you understand and believe that you are sent, then that will motivate you and your eyesight will change and you will see your life in a, from a different perspective and you will begin to see and understand that God loves everybody that you come into contact with. So what would it look like for us to embrace being scattered? What would it look like if, if all of us if this church, every single person here, what would it look like if we all made an honest effort to bless others? What would it look like if we all made an effort to eat with other people on a regular basis? What would we come to know from the Holy Spirit if we all set aside time just to listen? How would our lives change if we all more intentionally set aside time just to focus on Jesus, what he said, what he did, what he was all about? What if we understood that we are the sent ones? I don't really have a conclusion to this. I could keep on talking. Somebody's clock beeped, I understand. I don't have a conclusion because the story doesn't end. So the conclusion is, let's just go be about this business. Fair enough? People of God said, amen.